0: We're going to talk about the first commandment. Last week I sort of got to do my little academic thing and you all entertained that and, and let me get away with it. And Thank you very much. But We're going to sort of go a little more, hopefully simpler, than what we did last week. Because last week was you know, me sort of making the case that natural law is built into the universe, that we should obey God, that God's nature requires that we be like Him, that we reflect Him. Uh, In the way that we live towards each other and towards Him. And so that's sort of encapsulated and summarized in the Ten Commandments. But this week we're actually going to look at the First Commandment. And uh, let's see. First. Um, And that's going to be in Exodus, not that it's very long. Chapter 20, verse 3 is where we're going to find this First Commandment. and if you remember, what, is the, what do the Ten Commandments begin with before we actually get the command? What does it do? What does God do first? The Lord your God. <laughs> who did what? You out of the yeah, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He remem- reminds us of his deliverance. He says, I delivered you. I didn't make you keep the law. I didn't make you fulfill the law. I didn't make you do any of these things first. All I did was I rescued you now. <clears throat> Listen to me. So that's the way that God's law works. God doesn't come to us and say, work hard, keep my law, and you're going to be rescued. Instead, he says, I rescue you. Now, listen to what you ought to be like. Listen to what you ought to live like. And so, um, had anyone opened their Bible to Exodus 20, verse 3? Because if so, Stephanie, would you like to read it for us? You shall have no other gods before me. A very long verse. Thank you long challenging difficult we'll have to slog our way through it um this is one of the commands and actually if you look through the list almost all of these commands are negatively expressed one way or another and are not all of them right it doesn't say don't dishonor your father and mother it says honor your father and mother so there are commandments that are positive there are commandments that tell us how we should live not just how we shouldn't live but all of them for the most part begin by saying don't do this And I think, in my opinion, at least, the best way to approach each of these commands is not to begin with the negative and begin with the denial and begin with the thing we're not supposed to do. The best way to begin with each command is to begin with what is God calling us to? What is God saying that we should do? And so uh, if you look at the first command, there are assumptions made in that command. You shall have no other gods before me. What is the positive assumption that God makes in this verse that doesn't get stated outwardly? The thing he assumes that we ought to do. We shall worship him. All right, we shall worship him. Or if you wanted to put it in, if you wanted to stick really close to what the text says, have God as your God. Right? So he says, don't <laughs> he says don't have other gods, but what he means is have me as your God. So, if you really wanted to boil it down, that's the positive side of this command. And this is really what we're going to talk about today. What does it mean to have God as our God? Um, When you look through the Bible, you find all sorts of false deities that are believed in. You've got the Baals, you have the Asheroth, um, you have the male and female deities, you have goddesses of fertility that people believed that was the reason why rain fell on their crops. Uh, They believed that that was how they were able to reproduce and have more babies. Why? Because the fertility goddess was favoring us and looking out for us. Um, They believed there were gods over the water, gods over the land, gods over the air, uh, over the mountains. Um, Any realm of earth you could think of, they had sort of their own understanding that there's a regional deity for this area. Uh, If you remember when Jonah's at sea and the storm is happening... Uh, the people all call, and they're various gods, if you remember, right? And they're, and they're desperate. They're praying. None of their prayers are working. They say, "Well, who do you worship?" And then Jonah says, "I worship God." And to, you know, just to paraphrase, he basically says, "Yahweh is God over the land and the sea and the air." And the people get really afraid because they think, "Well, the God that you worship, most definitely, is probably the reason this is happening." And it definitely terrifies them. And then. When the storm stops, they have that confirmed for them. While God is sovereign over the land and the sea. He's the reason this is happening here. Um, you had gods like uh, Chemosh and Milcom, and their demand was sacrifice your babies. Sacrifice your children on the altar. Uh, give them to me as a burnt sacrifice. And Now, next week, Robert's going to talk about what it means not to have other gods. So these other gods this this is sort of going to be another focus next week but the positive command here is we should not have these other gods as our gods and, or the other contenders for gods in our lives we should have Yahweh as our god and so the the positive side of the command is the right place to start my question here is what is god telling is not what is god telling us we shouldn't do before we do anything else we need to ask what is god telling us we should do what does it mean to have yahweh as our god as the first commandment says what does this commandment really require of us well (coughs) nobody in here has their larger catechism do they anybody just carry around their catechism with them i don't blame you it's okay uh (laughs) yeah actually (laughs) you want to turn to the larger catechism What's that? Yes. Okay, I she gets a gold star. Oh, yes, you do get a gold star. They, we keep them in the kids' room, but you get one too. Uh, and the question we need to read is Larger Catechism, question 104. Get ready, it's a little long. You just volunteered to do some, a lot of reading, actually. I think I can read it. If you read the shorter catechism answer to this question, it's more succinct. But I generally like going to the larger because there's so much application there. So go ahead, I want to interrupt you. What are the duties required in the first commandment? The duties required in the first commandment are the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify Him accordingly by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing of Him, believing Him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in Him, being zealous for him, calling upon him, giving all praise and thanks, and yielding all obedience and submission to him with the whole man, being careful in all things to please him, and sorrowful when in anything he is offended, and walking humbly with him. All right, so all what I'm going to do is basically follow sort of this outline here. Uh, this is coming from the larger catechism. These are sort of the sub points underneath. So the, the larger catechism says having God as our God means knowing him. It means worshiping him. It means believing him. Actually, I'm not sure if that's my third point. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it doesn't mean not believing him, but I don't have a, a, a point under that. So we're just going to leave that blank. Um, <laughs> I, I was trying to keep up as you were reading. Uh, It means worshiping him. It means praying to him. It means being careful to obey him. I'm going to flip, put one in here. Oh, I've already got it, worshiping him. Um, And uh, I'll just put one more here. So this is what it means to have God as our God. Um, Let me see i got to get back to where I was in the notes now. One of the most impactful books that I ever read as a Christian, and I say this all the time, and you're probably tired of me saying it, but if you haven't read it, then you have to keep hearing me say it, and then when you tell me you've read it, then I'll stop mentioning it, uh, is Knowing God by J.I. Packer. I just need to see hands. Have any of you read it? Knowing God. Writing it now. All right. You like it? Mm-hmm. All right. I'm glad you said that. Mm-hmm. That's a good Sunday school answer, but I also believe that it's really your answer. Um, that is the first book I read as a Christian. That's the first book. My uncle, my uncle Jerry put it in my hands. He said, read this book. And I read that book and I fell in love with the study of God when I read that book. And I'm so glad he didn't give me something bad. (laughs) Who knows where I'd be right now if he'd given me a bad book, but he gave me a good book to start off my Christian life with. And so one of the things that Packer says at the beginning of this book is there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. He spends a lot of time on this. He says to know about God is to collect information. Uh, to, to know about God is to sort of just gather data together that you can state things about God. And, he, and what he says is a lot of people know about God. A lot of people know about God. The deity, but do they know him? Uh, There's a verse. Would someone turn to Jeremiah 20? uh, Sorry, Jeremiah 9 23. And while you turn there, I'm going to read a verse out of John 17. Jesus is talking. He's in the garden. He says, This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus says, What is eternal life? That they may know you. Not that they would know about you, not that they would have information about you, but that they would know you. Um, So for Jesus, the thing that we're called to is something that he calls knowing God. We should know God. That's what we were made for. Now, uh, who's a volunteer to read Jeremiah 9? We need 23 and 24 is the verse. Okay, thanks, Linda. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Um, he differentiates between knowing and understanding God. We should do both, but they aren't the same thing exactly. Let him who, my version says, boast or glory. If Whatever we glory in, whatever we boast in, we should boast in knowing God. We shouldn't boast in having information about God. If we have a catechism memorized, that's not the same thing as knowing God. Certainly a help, though. Um, but here's the thing. We're called to know God. The New Testament tells us this. The Old Testament tells us this. There are even more verses that tell us that we should know God. But how can we know God? Uh, um, To put it briefly, it's more than knowing about God. It's also not less than knowing about God. That's one thing I think that modern... um, There is a modern tendency in evangelical churches to emphasize experience and downplay knowledge. You You can go off both sides of the rail there. You can be so about experience that you have no knowledge that you have no understanding of God, but you have had experiences that you can't explain and you can't put it into words. And then on the other hand, you can be so head knowledge, so um, so uh, uh, devoted to just the ideas, just the principles, uh, that you miss knowing God. You actually don't have any experience at all with God. You could never say to yourself, I know God. And so we need to have both of those things. Can we really... Here's the... the uh, I've used this illustration before, but um, imagine telling your wife you love her, but you've never bothered to to learn her name. You've never bothered to find out where she grew up. Uh, You never bothered to find out uh, where she came from, what her childhood was like, why she has a lifelong fear of birds. Like imagine never finding these things out about your wife. Wouldn't that be strange? And could you really call that love? She's just a lady I see we do intimate things together but i do not really care who she is imagine having that kind of a marriage like that is that's not love that's not you cannot say you know each other imagine so many people in evangelicalism who say oh yeah i know god and then you say well tell me something about him and they'll say i don't know i just have experiences with him you know i think that's really akin to a spouse that doesn't know anything about their spouse Um, We really, how can we claim to love someone we don't even know much about? Well, knowledge of God is like that. But people who really know God in a deep way have more than information. And J.I. Packer gives uh, a summary of what he says it means to know God. So here's what he says. He gives four things that he says it takes to know God. He says knowing God means listening to his word and receiving it as the spirit applies it to us. In other words, we hear what God has to say and we receive it. It becomes part of our life. It means noting God's nature and his character as his word and works reveal it. Again, I think Presbyterians, generally speaking, are pretty good at that. We're pretty good at noting God's nature, noting his character. We sort of – we remember those things. But then he says accepting his invitations and doing what he commands. Well, that's taking the stuff we learn and actually putting it into practice, making it part of our daily life. We do not just show up on Sunday, do our performance, and then leave again but it's supposed to impact how we live all the time. And then finally, he says, knowing God involves rejoicing and recognizing the love that he's shown in drawing us into divine fellowship with him. And that's the part where I think think evangelicals tend to be pretty good at that part. And I think sometimes in Presbyterianism, we can be less good at that part, right? This involves rejoicing. This involves love. This involves... Fellowship. Well, we're less, it's harder to wrap your head around those things. But they're, and they're sort of experiential. And, and Packer is saying, hey, there's more to this than just collecting information. It has to change how we, how we live. It has to change the reason why we live. Uh, it has to affect us to the core of who we are. And so the picture of knowing God that starts to emerge then is of a person whose knowledge and energy and life are all centered around this one person. What he's saying here Have me as your God Have me as the center Have me as the fulcrum That all of your life turns around Uh, Make me the center Of your life choices and decisions That you make So to know God is to listen to him It is to believe him Uh, It's to believe what he says about himself It means that uh, when God talks to us And when he says things about himself We believe it We don't just sort of go Huh that's interesting I wonder if anyone actually thinks that but it's, no, actually, we believe that ourselves. Um, it means rejoicing, he said, his love on us. You know, this is a very far cry from the person who has information about God. And so Packer talks about how he said he knew a college professor. I do not know the year when this was going on, but this college professor was having struggles with church leadership. And Packer is a member of the Anglican Church, which I know you think, What? Kind of like Nazareth. Can anything good come out of the Anglican church? Well, J.I. Packer can come out of the Anglican church. Um, and he's still there. He's very faithful. He's in his 90s now, and he has stayed in the Anglican church. But he, he knew a college professor that was having trouble with leadership in the church, especially because they were denying fundamental elements of the gospel. And this man was struggling with this issue. And the comment that this professor made to Packer was, but it doesn't matter for I've known God and they haven't. I've known God and they haven't. Now, on the one hand, you think, man, that sounds like a very judgmental statement to make. But on the other hand, these are people that are denying fundamental elements of the gospel. Like They don't love the gospel. They don't love God. And this command is telling us to be that person that says, I've known God. God. I've walked with God. I've experienced God. I know God. So that's first and foremost what this is telling us. It's telling us that we should know God. We should know God. The second thing that it's telling us is that we should worship God. Um, it is baked into our humanity that we should be worshipers. Look around yourself at people who are irreligious and one of the things that you will see is they are fantastic absolutely devoted worshipers there is they have no problem with the skill of worshiping we see it all the time now it's typical to point to sports and it's easy for me to do because i don't care about sports see um but i'm not sure i see any other times maybe music concerts right where you see big spaces filled with cheering people who are actually all excited about something that is a form of worship it is a form of worship um whether you, could, you can go to that though and not worship them and ignore God. So I'm not saying that, that caring about sports is wrong, but I am saying people know how to worship. People know how to get excited about something. People know how to rejoice in things. Um, David Foster Wallace was a, a famous atheist, no, uh, novelist, a writer. Um, he, maybe he was atheist, maybe he was agnostic. I'm not exactly sure. But he gave a talk at a commencement ceremony for a college, and he was noticing that humanity has a sense in which they sort of have this drive for worship. And I want to read to you from what David Foster Wallace said because this guy's not a believer, but he recognizes there's something baked into all of us that we should be worshipers and that we sort of unavoidably do it. So here's what David Foster Wallace says. He says, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, right? This guy's not, not a Christian at all. If you worship money and things, if they are where you, you, you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and then you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. So I love letting non-Christians do the work for me, if possible, when I can. And that is exactly what David Foster Wallace is doing there. Anything that we worship is going to have power over us. And the thing that he says is this. He says, when we worship things like these, we do not see it. We do not see it. We do not perceive it. It is, he says, that our worship of these things is Unconscious. Which, again, I just think, man, thank you, atheist guy, for saying this. Because it sounds like such a religious talk. I'm sure that when he finished, people thought he was probably getting religion or something. But he says, our worship of these things is unconscious. We don't think about it. So what that means is that if I ask you, do you have other gods in your life? And maybe next week when Robert gets at this, your tendency may be to say, well, I don't have other gods, so I'm good. I don't have to listen to this now. And just remember if you really are worshiping these other things, they are unconscious. You are not thinking about it. So maybe the thing to ask is, God, root out of me these things that I am worshiping and I do not know that I am worshiping. The things I am the most devoted to that I don't even think about. Now, I'm, I'm walking in on Robert's territory, so I'm going to pull back from that And just say, whatever gives us meaning, whatever gives us satisfaction in our lives, that's really the thing that we're worshiping. That's the thing we're putting on a pedestal. Because the things we worship are the things we protect. The things we worship are the things that we're willing to give anything for. Our problem is not that we don't worship. Our problem as sinners is that we worship the wrong things. And so the challenge here is... We need to be willing to call out the things we're unconsciously pursuing and chasing after and finding our satisfaction in. But the first commandment, God calls us to worship the thing that is the most satisfying, that's the most fulfilling, that's the most important. And he says, that's me. And he doesn't do that out of selfishness. He does it because that's what he knows is best for us. Because if we follow the power We're always going to feel weak, like David Foster Wallace says. If we follow after beauty, we're always going to feel ugly. Uh, If we make uh, uh, money our point of satisfaction, we're always going to feel poor. We're always going to feel broke. We're always going to feel insecure. Same thing with our family. If we make our family what our life is all about, when we lose them or when they disappoint us, then we're going to crush them and we're going to be crushed. And God says, but if you make me your God, I will never crush you. He says, if you make me your God, I'm not going to destroy you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to uphold you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to give you meaning. So much better. In the second commandment, we'll start to sort of see the question of how do we worship? How do we do the things God's calling us to in this commandment? But at least to start off with, we need to remember he's calling us to worship him. He's saying, make me the center of your life. Any questions about that point? I should have asked that about the first one. You can always interrupt <laughs> uh, next though we should pray to him we should pray to him I, I know this seems simple um but to have god as our god means to pray to him it means to talk to him uh just sort of as i was thinking about what to say under this point i thought well when is when does prayer first start happening in the bible and the first time it happens is in genesis 20 which I know in other places you see people talking to God, but this is the first time you actually see the word pray. And when it happens is in Genesis 20, Abraham is with Abimelech and Abraham prays for Abimelech so that he doesn't die. Why does he do that? Because he can't stop Abimelech from dying. He asks God to do the thing that he can't do. Um, The next time prayer happens in the Bible is when Isaac is praying for his barren wife. Why is he praying for his barren wife? Because he can't open her womb. He can't do this thing. Um, The next time is when Moses prays to the Lord after seeing Pharaoh. He asks God for help. Why? Because Moses can't help himself. He's totally helpless. Um, And it keeps happening like that. Moses prays for the people after the serpents bite them. Why? Because Moses can't stop the people from dying from the snake bites. Um, Hannah prays to God. She asks him to open her womb so that she can have a baby because she can't do that for herself. Like. It's pretty amazing just to keep seeing the times that the word pray comes up in Scripture just every single time. It's a sense of hopelessness. It's in some area where God's people either need help or they've gotten help, and now they're thanking Him for it. And so it sort of makes you think, man, every single time that I pray, I'm telling God that I'm helpless and that He's powerful. And every, every single time that I don't pray, I'm saying something about myself. I'm saying, I think I'm sufficient. I think I'm enough. Those times when I am the worst off spiritually are the times when I feel the most sufficient and the most ready to take on something. And I look back and I think, wow, those were, that was a spiritual, dry time. Um, and so um, I could say more about prayer. Um, if you want to hear more about earnest prayer, that's what my newsletter article is for this month. Um, but maybe it's best just to put it put it simply by saying prayer is an expression and an indication that God is our God. Prayer is an indication that we are helpless and that we recognize that and that we realize the help we need comes from somewhere else and it's not us, it's God. It's so one of the ways we have God as our God. Um, the there are. Uh, I was talking to, I was at Twin Lakes a couple weeks ago and one of my pastor friends was there and I was talking to him about one of his college professors. And he said this guy was a church historian. He understood theology better than anybody he knew. And he said the guy wasn't a believer. He said the guy was like this brilliant professor who knew more about Reformed theology than anybody else. And yet he was not a Christian, not a believer. He'd written all these books on Puritan spirituality and things like that. But he was openly just, I don't know if he was an atheist, but he certainly didn't believe in in Christ. And you know what makes... Uh, somebody who knows and understands God, different from somebody who, or <laughs> different from somebody who just has knowledge about God. That guy doesn't pray to God. He has no reason to talk to God. He has no personal interaction with Him. He doesn't speak to Him. Prayer is one of those things that differentiates us from the people who have the information. We may have the information, but do we pray to Him? Do we worship Him? Do we talk to Him? Do we know Him? Um. A third way that we should, I'm it here even though it's out of order. Um, a third way that we know God is by praising him. Um, <clears throat> um, I have to be brief here, but here's the reality. We sing about what we love. We sing about stuff that's important to us. We don't sing about, well, actually if you turn on the radio, the radio is filled with trivialities. Things that people love, right? And if you turn on the radio, what do you hear people declaring that they love? If the things they sing about are actually declarations of love, what do the people of this world love? Themselves. Yeah, okay, themselves, right? I'm so awesome. I'm number one. You'll hear so many songs about people, Why? Uh, you know, just saying how great they are. Uh, you'll hear songs praising money. I got money. I got money. Lots of money. Um, Lots of songs about sex, right? People love and worship sex. People love things, cars, houses, vacations, the sort of things. Um, People love other people. Lots of songs about devotion to each other. Um, But as you said, they definitely love themselves. And even those other things, what are those things? Love, sex, money, uh, stuff. They're all just expressions of self-love, really. These things do something for me. And I've got more of it than you do. We'll talk about music again when we get to (laughs) coveting later in the summer. Um, Now, if you turn on the right radio stations, you'll hear people talking about loving God, too. So there's a little bit of a balance to that. But uh, I guess the point that I want to make is that singing and music are part of the human heart and the way that we sort of express praise to God. They're one of the ways that we show the things that we love. So we can praise what we love in lots of ways. You know, I, I can praise my wife without singing a song. I think she would probably like that. Uh, <laughs> okay, she likes when I sing. Yeah. I was trying to be self-deprecating, but now you can praise me all you want. Um, <coughs> I want to hear you sing how, how great I am. Um, but singing isn't the only way that we praise God either, though. Um, we can we can express our love for God and our need for God by praying aloud by reading scripture by lifting him up in our hearts. you know singing may not be our forte uh, praise doesn't necessarily just mean music um, and we'll talk more about singing about music, about what we should sing, how we should sing, that sort of stuff next I don't know in two weeks when we do the second commandment, but we're not there yet. Uh, but I think there's no doubt that one of the most important tools God has given to us is our hu- the human voice, right? The, the vocal cords that we have. One of the most uh, things we see all the time in Scripture is this command to use our voices to sing to God and praise Him. Again, your atheist who has all this information about God and may actually know a lot of things, and maybe he's a professor who's written lots of books on theology and stuff, not only does he not pray to God, he doesn't praise God. You don't praise something that you don't love. But that's exactly what God calls us to do. He says, Hey, you love me? Do something out loud. Let it be known that you love me. Um, Fourth, we should have to have God as our God means that we should be careful to please Him. Um, You know, each of us lives to please somebody. There is somebody that all of us are living for in our lives, somebody that we want to pray, praise, somebody we want to please. And we already saw this. All of us worship. The question is, who do we worship? What do we worship? And part of what we worship is what we do. Uh, we do what the one that we worship says. So, you know, for example, if we worship our career, we're going to do what our career demands. And if we really worship our career, it's not going to matter what it costs. It's not going to matter what it takes. Um, I listen to to a lot of tech podcasts, and I was listening to one, and it was by this guy who had been divorced four times. I'm not really trashy. Anyway, Uh, he'd been divorced four times. Very successful man. He had been a venture capitalist investor. He had put lots of money into tech and had come out very well because of it. Uh, He was a college professor, I think, at NYU. He had the respect of his students. And one of the things that he said was, me and a lot of my peers built our careers. We didn't care what it cost us. And so one of the things he said that it cost me was my marriages. He said, I was so devoted to my career. I was so devoted to the hours I was putting into it. I didn't care what it did to my relationships. I didn't care what it did to my marriage because all I was doing was living to serve my career. And immediately, I was thinking about this lesson. I was listening to it just this last week, and I was listening to him say this, and I was thinking to myself, he did exactly what the thing he worshiped demanded. He served it, and he served it, and he served it, and as a sacrifice, it demanded his family. Um, If we worship our family, what do we do? We end up crushing them with our expectations. We get angry when they fail, and we let other areas of our life suffer because of it. You know, we might say, well, my family's more important than church. My family's more important than being in worship or something like that. Uh, We can do the same thing with politics, right? If if we love politics, then every single thing we ever encounter or see is going to look political to us. And we're going to do what the politics demands of us, regardless of whether it interferes with other areas of our lives. We will sacrifice family relationships if we worship politics. We'll let a political disagreement separate us from family members we'll say i'm not going to go eat with him he's a democrat or he's a republican or he's a a libertarian or whatever i'm not going to spend time with that person and when we do that we're doing what our god demands of us and everything ends up looking political even eating a chicken sandwich right suddenly everything is political if we worship ourselves what are we going to do we'll live in ways that might hurt others but because our satisfaction and what we want is most important we do not care so the point here is we end up serving the thing we worship we end up doing whatever pleases the one we have first in our hearts and um, having God as our God means God does ask something of us it does mean we're in an agreement we're in a covenant with God God makes a covenant with us and he promises that he will be our god but then he reminds us that there are consequences to being in a covenant with him there are punishments and sufferings that come if we forsake the covenant this last week for some weird reason i decided to read Deuteronomy 28 for some of my devotions and it was the covenant curses that god promises and he says you know if you break my covenant you are going to starve if you break my covenant the enemies are going to besiege your city if you break if you break my covenant you're going to be so hungry that you will eat your own children. Uh, If you break my covenant, there's going to be drought, and you're going to be hungry, and you'll be desperate. And it's just you go through all of these things, and you realize that being in a covenant with God means that he expects something of you. That's one one of the things that really comes out when you read Deuteronomy 28. And the other thing is, too, to prom- God covenants with us and he promises us that he's going to look out for what's in our best interest too so when we put our faith in Jesus we enter into a covenant with God and God gives us covenant signs he gives us a covenant meal he gives us the, the covenant sign of baptism he gives us a covenant meal of the Lord's Supper and relevant to us this morning and for the rest of this class is we acknowledge the covenant law God does expect something of us since he's our God. And if you want to see the covenant, God's spelled out the best. Where do you look? You look to the 10 commandments because what does he do? He takes all of scripture and all of the natural law and sort of summarizes it down into a single set of commandments. And so baked into the first commandment here is this motivation for us to listen to and rest all of the best that we have by God's grace on him and to keep his commands. And One thing to remember is is this Anytime we break any of the commands Anytime we're not careful to please God In a sense we're breaking the first command In a sense every single commandment here is really telling us How can we have God as our God All the rest of the nine commandments are expositions Of this first commandment to have God as our God And so what does it mean to please God? It doesn't mean to have information. It doesn't mean to have knowledge only. Uh, it doesn't mean to go through the motions. It means that from the heart, we really do want to please God with our lives. That we're coming to the word and we're really saying, what is it that would make God happy? What, would, what could I do that would please God? And this is the answer to us. Um, <clears throat> a fifth, and finally, this is, we're closing now. To have God as our God means single-minded devotion. Because when he says, you shall have no other gods, he's, notice what he's not saying. He's not saying, he's not saying, uh, let me see, I'm trying to think of the best way to say what I need to say here. (laughs) When he says, have no other gods, he doesn't mean that they're not going to have him too. What he's saying is, you can't have, He said you can't have Yahweh plus other gods. He's saying you can't have me and all these other gods as well. You can't have me and Baal. Because when the people when the people of Israel worship Baal, for example, it happens in the Old Testament. If you read through the book of 1st and 2nd Kings, it happens quite a bit. They don't abandon Yahweh. It's not like they tear down the temple and get rid of it or something, but they want to have Yahweh plus all this other stuff. So, what he's really doing is he's He's calling them to single-minded devotion. He's saying, you can't have me and all these other things. Um, you can't have God and things. You can't have God and Chemosh. You can't have God and Milcom. You can't have God and Baal. Um, and this makes sense to us even when we're not tempted to worship other divine deities that we think are, are deities... Because what does he do with the rich young ruler? Jesus meets with the rich young ruler, and what, is, what does he say after the rich young ruler goes away? you remember the, the, the statement Jesus makes? He says, no servant can have two masters. Either he'll love the one and hate the one, or he'll hate the one and love the other. And so he's saying, you have to choose who you're going to serve. You can't have it all. And he says, you cannot, the last thing he says is, you cannot serve God and money. So he pinpoints the other God in this guy's life. This guy's like, I've kept all the commandments. I love Yahweh, but I also want to have something else too. And in this guy's case, it's money. In this guy's case, money is his hangup. Money is his other God. He has another God before God. That doesn't mean he doesn't have Yahweh. He wants to have both. He wants uh, Yahweh to sort of function as like the thing that fills in the emptiness of his life. I can have all this stuff. I can keep all the commandments. And and it's okay because God is sort of like the stopgap. He's the one that's going to fill in the little bits of emptiness that I have. Um, So the first commandment, what does it do? It reminds us that... Our devotion to God cannot be splintered. Our devotion to God can't be partial. It has to be single-minded, set on him, because God's not going to share us. God tells us in the very first commandment, I will not share you with other gods. You must have me, first and foremost, in your heart. And so this is the positive side of the first commandment. I realized I could say more. You could really say a lot about each of these commands um but there are a whole series of negative things that this commandment is also forbidding robert's going to get to that next week in our class unless something happens and he can't get back in which case you get me again um but are there any questions about the first commandment at least the positive side of the first commandment or any other statements you want to make i don't have robert in here to chime in so i I need some of you guys to help me out this time All right. Well, in that case, I'm going to pray for us. Uh, Lord, as we end this class, would you plant within us not only a knowledge of your law, but also a love for your law? Because we know that your law is an expression of your character, and it's an expression of what pleases you. Would you help us to have you as our God to love you as our Lord, and to be open to correction from your word whenever we realize that we've fallen short of your standards. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.